James chapter 5. James chapter 5. This final section tonight of James seems a little disjointed at first, but it comes together when we remember James as a whole, right? Even though uh, some of the statements he's made and the exhortations he's given seem harsh on a first hearing, James has been writing to these congregations as their pastor to a persecuted church, a suffering church as a pastor. And so this letter is filled with instructions for the church as the church specifically. And one of James's most pressing concerns in this letter has been the way these believers talk to one another, how they interact with one another, their words. Now that they've been brought forth by the word of truth as a kind of first fruits of God's new creation, if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 18. But the pressure of persecution and suffering had begun to bring out some of the ugliness that was still remaining in these Christians. But they belonged to Christ nonetheless. And if the head of the church had no concern or love for them, then his spirit wouldn't inspire a letter to them. A letter that has also come to us, proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ to us in these last Sunday evenings here at Moundsville Baptist Church. We remember that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, but also very recently in 4.11 and 5.9, how James has warned us that our words and our speech can hurt each other and negatively impact the church. But here tonight, he closes by focusing on how the sanctified speech of those who are in Christ Jesus might help one another through the gift of prayer that Jesus has given to His people. Jesus has made us literally a kingdom of priests to God, beloved. We are called to participate in the church's mission to bring the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to the suffering, the sick, to the straying, to the dying, not just to the world, right, but to one another as a family. We are called to persevere with one another in prayer, singing praise, confessing our sins to one another, forgiving one another, and restoring the one who strays that we might obtain everlasting life with Christ on that final day. So let me pray and we'll look at the text together. Father, I thank You for Your Word tonight. I thank You for this letter that You've given to us. We thank You for the teaching of James by the inspiration of Your Holy Spirit. And God, we ask tonight that as this we close this series through this letter that You would write on our hearts the meaning and the purpose for which it was written. Father, that we might not only hear this Word, but be doers of it for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the sake of one another as Your people. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going to pick up chapter 5. Actually, tonight we're going to go back to verse 12 and start there. He says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any under oath, any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, I know we looked at verse 12 last week as it relates to verses 7 through 11, where it's a warning, I think, about a lack of patience and an admonition not to ignore 
God's sovereignty over us in all things when we are speaking. Our words need to be informed by the fact that we actually control very little. Uh, that we actually uh, should only guarantee what we know we can do. But when we understand that it's also connected to verses 13 through 20, and that it sets up the truth that all our words ought to be informed mainly, and I think verse 12 actually links better with the rest of it than it does with what came before it. When we read it in light of these last verses, it sets up the truth that all our words ought to be informed by our utter dependency on God for everything. That is, we pray. The church is a praying people. That means we are not the oath makers and the promise keepers in this equation. We are those who rely. We are those who depend on the faithfulness of another. And so as he uh, makes this clear in chapter in, in verse 12, he heads into verse 13, basically saying, listen, is the persecution that you're dealing with that oppresses you and hurts you and scares you, is it bringing about suffering? All right, well, don't trust yourself to make it stop. Don't trust your own understanding. Pray. Right? Are you, are you not suffering? And so you don't feel like you need God as much? Sing praises to Him in prayer. His providence is also the source of our joy. So don't forget Him and begin to rely on other things, believing that you may not need Him as much as you thought you did. Are any of you sick, He asks. In verse 14, so sick it seems that you can't go to anyone. Notice that you have to call for help to come to you in the form of the elders of the church, which means by this time, among these congregations, they had elders. Each congregation had elders. There was a group of pastors present in each Christian congregation. That's what we know that these are the elders James is referring to because of the word he uses here for elder in Greek, which is presbyteros. It's, so he's not talking simply about the older or more seasoned people in the church. He's talking about those that have been ordained as elders in the church of Jesus Christ. This, this is another place where the Bible is reminding us how we need to operate as a church. We need to recognize how God has set up the church to serve one another, to meet each other's needs in the midst of all these things that a church might be going through. When someone is so sick they can't get out of bed, which is what you see pray over him, right? This person is unable to rise. God would have the elders come. This is part of what it means to shepherd. Those that meet the qualifications of pastor to shepherd the flock with the word. And they are to be the ones that pray and that anoint with oil, which here, more than specifying the substance used to rub on someone's head, is related ultimately to one standing as a justified child of God. Actual oil can most certainly be used for this, and the Scripture does encourage that. But here, as we see anointing used throughout the Old Testament, the point is reminding the saint who is horribly sick that they are God's child, anointed by Him. He loves them. The prayers of the elders should point the sick to their standing in Christ. This is something we often overlook, is that God has provided tangible means for us to know His presence. Here it's oil. Right here, it's oil. When the elders pray over you and anoint your head with oil, it's literal oil. That's, that's something that we can lean on and rely on and trust in because God has said that He'll be there. But here the point again is reminding the horribly sick saint that they are God's child. They belong to Him. He loves them. The prayers of the elders then ultimately 
are to point the sick to their standing in Christ. Because notice in verse 15, verse 15, it's the prayer of faith that is saving the sick one whom the Lord will raise up. That's an interesting way to put it. Beloved, the, the verbiage here doesn't really point to some guarantee of physical healing. The text is actually saying more than that. It's pointing mainly to the fact that whether we live or whether we die, He will not forget us. He will raise us up. There's a definite article missing here in English translations before the word faith. It's the prayer of the faith. The prayer of the one who's been redeemed by Jesus Christ is commissioned here to proclaim to the sick that they will indeed receive the promise that God's word has made for them in Christ. That's why, or that's the connection here at the end of that verse to sins being forgiven. That's why that's said, because all of that is meant to be encompassed there. God has given to those who shepherd the flock the authority to tell them that, to tell people that their sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ. The prayer that grabs onto these promises for the dying is the prayer of faith. And faith is not a force or a power that we have. It's a gift of God by which we take hold of Christ. So, I don't believe that the best word we can give to someone who is sick is that they will be healed or that they will get better. Again, go back to verse 12. We don't know such things. Go back to 4, 13 through 17. We can't guarantee that. We don't know that. And we get superstitious often with praying like a a certain amount of people. We need to make sure we have a certain number and, and it's said a certain amount of times or whatever it is. But I, I don't believe that the best word a Christian has to give to somebody that's dying is that they're going to be healed or that they're going to get better. While we may most certainly pray that that would be the Father's will, absolutely. The best word we can give, whether someone will live or die, is what is true of them regardless. God is going to raise you up. Either He will heal you or He will take you to be with Himself. But you will not be left. You will not be forsaken and uncared for. He will not forget you, whether you recover from this or whether you die. Your sins are forgiven and you belong to Him. It would be amazing if, if those of us who are believers knew how to talk to each other in those times rather than guaranteeing or just, I know that I'm going to be healed and I believe it with all my heart and that's, that's great, but that may not happen. Right? It's better to be honest with what is in Scripture. Look at how James argues. Because, remember, what's the goal of the Christian life? Is it to stay here forever? Like, do we ever die? Like, like do, The goal is not to stay. The goal is to die and to be with Him. And so, look at, look at how James argues for the point of this as he goes on in verse 16. He writes, therefore, right? That is, since you know that if you have committed sins, you'll be forgiven... Right, look, look at the verse here. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So since you know that if you've committed sins, you'll be forgiven. Since you know that, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. When we apply that to our whole lives as Christians, not just sickness, because the forgiveness of sins has nothing to do with sickness. But when we apply this to our whole lives, this healing is not only what God may do for the body, but what God is guaranteeing He will do for the soul. Every believer will be healed one way or another because our sins are forgiven. That's the hope here. That's the promise here. 
I don't know why we got it in our heads that we would be assured of God's promises by like always being healed and apparently never dying. As though just death is a complete surprise to us. Beloved, it, it isn't. It shouldn't be. We shouldn't be so passionately afraid of death. Which is an easy thing to say when you're not dying, but just notice how the Scripture speaks. It's as if God has something better for us than life on the earth. The finality of our forgiveness, the purchase of our salvation is not so that we would then forget God and move on to something better, but so we would continue to come to Him as His children, continue to press in to our Lord Jesus, to our Savior. And we don't just do that in private. We confess these things to and pray for one another. There's there's a communal aspect to the Christian faith that without we are fighting with both hands tied behind our back and our eyes plucked out and there's there's no chance. And and listen, we don't get enough community with one another by coming to church, right? I mean that's great. Don't don't not do that. But when are we here confessing our sins to one another, talking to one another, really bearing one another's burdens? Some people have that because they're friends, but most people in our church or a lot of people in our church walk in and walk out and never converse with people and never really get to pour out their heart or share what they're dealing with. There has to be some way among this community of faith in the church that we have the opportunity, some type of outlet to do that, that we understand this is meant to be a way of life. Now that we're Christians, it's a a kind of rhythm in the lives we live as believers that we're bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another, confessing our sins to one another. And that that's that takes intentionality, right? We it's it's kind of funny the the if you use text, you know your little emojis and when people want to say they're praying, they send a praying emoji, but it's not a praying emoji, it's a high five. So whenever you do that, it looks kind of funny. All right, like I'm praying for you. No, 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 you're you're high-fiving somebody. That's what that emoji means. So just FYI, you're all looking at me like I'm nuts, but that's, you're actually sending high-fives. So it's just kind of funny. My mother-in-law, God bless her, this is hilarious. She doesn't get, um, like, text speak. So for the longest time, she she thought LOL meant lots of love. Um, It means laugh out loud. So she would text... uh, Aunt Betty is sick. She's been diagnosed with cancer. LOL. Right? It just looks so make sure you know what you're you're texting to people. But we can, we confess our sins to one another. We let each other into one another's lives. Right? This this is a gift from our God. This is this is not a burden. He's not laying something on us like it's meant to tax us and wear us out. We, we cannot get through these things without one another. And when you hear that in the context of James, in the context of a, a suffering church, again, the Bible is written to a suffering, maligned, alien people in this world. It's not written to the citizens of the planet, right? The prayer of a righteous person, which, by the way, that's talking about you. All right? The prayer of a righteous person, which is what all who are in Christ are at this moment, And for eternity, righteous has great power as it is working in verse 16. Now, either God is lying about what prayer does, or we don't pray enough or in the right way, or we have misunderstood, maybe, the main purpose 
for God giving the gift of prayer. Because we read that sentence and think, okay, so the more righteous I am, the more effective my prayers will be. How do you get more righteous than justified? How? What? Where's that extra righteousness going to come from? Right? This is what you pray. This is the prayer of the faith. It's, it's ours. We have it because we are in Christ. He, he's talking to the church. It's not like some of the people, some of the Christians in the church, are, are they really have power when they pray. They get what they ask for when they pray. No, everybody in the church that's born again is righteous in Christ. Fully credited with his righteousness to their account. This is for the church. He's, he's giving them the reason to pray. When we read these texts as some type of like magic code or decoder to get our prayers answered, we're missing the point of prayer. If that's the case, who in here would say everything I pray for, I get everything I ask for is answered. So again, either God is lying to us or we're not understanding properly what the text teaches about prayer. Okay, then, Tony, how do I account for the fact if you say that I'm righteous and so my prayers have great power as they are working again to do what? Right to, to do what to, to bring about what we're praying for or to do something to our hearts because we've learned to rely and depend on God. But. Tony, if I'm righteous, how do I account for the fact that my prayers aren't ever really answered? To which I would say, beloved, why do you think that? Why do you think that because God isn't giving you what you asked for? That he's not answering anything. That is hard. Right? We've, we've all, we have, every single one of us, I think, in this room has faced this. But there are things you've asked for that apparently the answer is no, I'm not going to do it that way. Right? Those of you that have been by the bedside of a loved one that is not going to make it, You've prayed. And clearly the answer was, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to preserve their life this time. And so you could say, okay, God, so did, why didn't you answer that prayer in the affirmative? Would you, do you really believe that there, like there was something wrong with you? Or that your prayer wasn't enough and that God is really just actually kind of cruel? Please don't think that. You have, we have to rest in what God has already said and has already told us. Those are the times when we doubt whether or not God actually loves us. But the love of God was demonstrated for us in the fact that while we were still sinners, He died for us. Christ died for us. We don't know whether or not God loves us then by the way He chooses to give or what He chooses to give and what He chooses to take. That's not how we're meant to gauge His disposition towards us. God gave us, well, answered and unanswered prayer. And by the way, they're all answered. They're just not always answered in the way that we think. And so we, we needlessly separate ourselves from God as though we've done something wrong because the answer we got was not the answer we wanted. And if we're honest, I think if you could get Christians to be honest, which is part of the benefit of sitting down together and face to face with people and sharing your heart, confessing your sins, 
with one another, sharing the needs that you have and the burdens you have, as all this kind of stuff starts to come out. But where did we get it in our heads that like we, we gauge God's disposition towards us based on what He gives or takes that has nothing to do with it? Answered and unanswered prayer has nothing to do with God's disposition toward you. That's settled. That, that was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago. That's settled. This is the, 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 how crucial we need to be separated in our thinking from this world and its hopes and its, its dreams and its attachments because the, they, they make us think that there's something off between us and God because we're not experiencing in real time what we're sure would bring us joy. And why would God ever withhold that from us? Beloved, He's proven His love to you. He's poured it out lavishly on each and every one of us in Jesus Christ. God gave us prayer mainly mainly to provide us with a means of connecting with the One who died for us because He loved us and rose again to save us. It's, it's not the answering that makes prayer worthwhile. It's the existence of it. Right? That, that you and I, in our seemingly insignificant walk through this world, this moment in time, these 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years that we have, that while we're separated from Him physically, we are not separated from Him finally or spiritually. Prayer is mainly to maintain the connection that God says we have. That's how you pray. We pray sometimes, our, even our words or our tone make it sound like he, he doesn't really want to help us. So you have to kind of bend His arm and, 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 and beg Him when He's already said, I'll, I'll be right there. Cast your cares on me because I care for you. There's something about proximity to Jesus that does the heart good in this miserable world. Right? And prayer is how we get close. That, that's the reason to cultivate a prayer life. Right? Don't think of it, well, if I, if I prayed more, things would go better in my life. They may, they may not. Right? But God never said that's, that's, that's what would happen. Every promise of answers is connected in the text to His desire to save the nations. Pray in faith for that. God is going to do that. Look, look at 17 and 18 here. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So this is a, a, another or a future rationale for prayer. Elijah prayed like that. Why? Why did Elijah pray for that to happen? You see, it's not just like, hey, God, can I get a, a, a new car? Right. And if we need one, you know, I'm certainly you pray for that. But it's, it's not like, uh, you know, God, I, if, if uh, you know, please, I, I know that uh, it's dangerous to have money. But if you let me hit the Powerball, uh, I'll pay all my bills and I'll give a ton to the church. Right. That's Elijah prayed that for rain to stop because Israel was filled with idolatry. And because Elijah wanted to destroy the prophets of Baal and the tyranny of wicked Queen Jezebel. 
when it's attached to what God has revealed his purpose to be, he's listening and he's coming through. When we don't know what that purpose is, we just trust him. God granted his request there to a prophet, to one commissioned to proclaim the word of God. So I personally think, this is just my opinion here, right? It's worth about a nickel. I think these verses then, in light of who Elijah was, 17 and 18 are mainly for the elders who were admonished back in verse 14. I think that's really what he's going after here. Ask for the right things, elders. Shepherd the flock with the promise, right? Not with your own words. That's again, takes us back to verse 12 and helps us see how it's connected. We don't talk to people like we can guarantee anything. That's not what an elder is. A shepherd of the flock is trying to shepherd people towards Christ. Right? So when we pray, when we pray for the sick, we pray, we ask that God would heal. But what we're really desiring is that God would keep His promise to the one lying flat before us, if that's the case. Because He's going to do that. He's going to do that. Verse 19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so, in some ways, the close of James makes me rethink all of it. You know, not, not that like I, I'm going back on the sermons I'm saying. It, it makes me rethink really who he was talking to in these congregations. Maybe, maybe. Because he so often, addre- his addressees are my brothers. And sometimes in Greek, you wouldn't be doing anything to the uh, inerrancy of Scripture to say, really, we should say brothers and sisters because that's literally what it means. Other times it really is just just brothers, like it is here. It's just my brothers. So this is the elders. We will all be tempted to go astray, especially when they're suffering and feel like, again, your prayers are hitting the ceiling and just bouncing right back down on your face. Because that, that's, again, that's what we feel like when God isn't answering a real-time prayer. We, we feel like He's not listening. And He said He's listening. He's, he's promised that He's with you, that He's not going to leave you or forsake you. So if that's what you feel has happened, either you or the adversary is lying to you. Whether or not God gives you what you're asking for in that moment is not how we determine whether or not He is who He says He is. For that, we look at the promise of the gospel and nothing else. If we move outside the gospel for a second, like John the Baptist in prison, if we let anything else inform our thinking, we're going to feel like God is against us, even though he's literally said, I'm not against you, I'm for you. When you're praying for something and I'm not going to give you, for whatever reason his will may dictate, I'm not going to grant that request as you're asking it, know that I am for you, I am not against you. And look, we, 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 if you've had kids, you get a sense of what this is like. Sometimes they ask for things and they don't understand the reasons that as a parent you must say no. They, they, in real time, you know what they're going to do? They're going to turn around and go to their siblings or go to their friends. I hate my dad. My mom is so dumb. Right? I just, I just wanted to go and shoot guns off the bridge. Like, I don't understand why they wouldn't let me do that. You know, just... Well, no, I, I'd rather you didn't shoot guns off the bridge. Like, I guess I'm a tyrant, right? No, my kids are not asked to do that. Well, Carmine does, but none of the other ones asked to do that. But, right, so we've, we've experienced that on some level. 
you, you know as an earthly father who is a sinner, as an earthly mother who is a sinner, you know. And, and it hurts you. And I'm not saying it hurts God. I don't know that we should talk about him like that. But it hurts you sometimes because you're like, they're going to think I don't care about him and I don't love him and I don't want to ruin our relationship. But, you know, you know sometimes what they don't. And that's part of faithful parenting. If you just give them everything they ask for, what, what happens when you do that to a child? If everything they ask for, they get exactly what they want. What would happen to that child? Show me a good kid that had everything they had. Normally, kind of, I, I, I don't know how to, but some of the best people you meet as adults were kids that had nothing but a mom and dad that loved them. That's some of the best people you'll meet. And that two sticks to rub together and they just, their mom and dad loved them and took care of them. And I mean, my, my, again, let me say something nice about my mother-in-law. My, my mother-in-law, we were talking last night about her mom. And my mother-in-law had nothing, nothing growing up. They lived in a little town called Bladensburg and, uh, they, they, uh, they depended most of all, uh, mostly for their meat on whether or not their dad, uh, got things when he was hunting. Uh, they had their, their, the mom had to make the clothes out of, uh, you know, feed sacks and things like that. And, and that you should hear her praise her mother. You know, because what, what does life, what do you learn as you look back in the past? You can see things differently. And beloved, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that our, um, our light momentary affliction is what he would call it. And for Paul to say that is something because nothing he went through was light and momentary. But he says, I'm not looking at it horizontally. I'm looking at it from eternity. This light momentary affliction, affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Beloved, there will come a day. There will come a day when unanswered prayers will no longer be seen as a reason to doubt his love but may even be the very reasons why we understood, oh, it was then that you really loved me. Right? You know footprints. My child, it was then that I carried you when you only saw one set of footprints in the sand. It's not easy to not have our prayers answered. I am not, I'm not super Christian. I'm not saying that. Like, you know, stiff upper lip, push through it. No, it hurts. It hurts, and it hurts when what you're asking for is not bad, and it seems very good, and it would be very good, and you don't get it. What, 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 I, what I think James is saying to a people that would be praying, God, could you please take this suffering away from us? Could, I, mean, I mean, look at what it's doing. It, it's, we're all edgy and at each other's throats, and we're unkind to each other. We mistreat the poor. Well, God, we're having a hard time down here. We've got Rome on our backs. We've got other churches on our backs. We, we have the Judaizers on our backs. Like, throw us a bone here. Lighten up. And James is saying, listen, God is hearing you when you pray. The difference is that He loves you. And you have to know that whether He takes that suffering away or lets you die, His promise to you is firm and kept, and He's not moving on it. He's not going to move on it. That's all a pastor can tell you. It, when you walk into a hospital room and, and you know sometimes, okay, they're not going to make it. Now, I'm not ever going to say that, right? I'm not a doctor. And I don't think that would be very loving to walk into a hospital room and say, oh, they're, they're done, right? So I'm, I'm never going to do that. 
But beloved, what, what, what does a shepherd have to say? What can I guarantee? Nothing but this. He will keep His Word whether you live or whether you die. So pray. Because what that is going to do is increasingly show you that you actually don't know everything. That you actually need a lot more than you think. Whether you're suffering or joyful or sick or sinful, whatever it is, it's, it's going to, to chip away at your heart because prayer is weird. I don't mean that disrespectful, but praying is weird. I mean, you, you, you're talking to somebody, you assume they're listening, but and God knows everything anyway, right? So, beloved, pray. What I'm saying here, linking it to 19 and 20, is that we're going to doubt the truth of God's Word. I think that's how James is closing here. And one of the main ways that doubt creeps in is when we experience the seemingly pointlessness of the seeming pointlessness of prayer. Like why, why, you know, why do I do this? That's when doubt starts to get into your mind, like it did for John the Baptist, right? It's, it's suffering, persecution, sickness. These things they they threaten our faith. Not because our God's gift of faith isn't good enough to hold us. That, that's what James said in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of light. So the gift of prayer is good and perfect. It's because so often it's actually not Him that is the object of our faith. He's not what we're asking for. Right? We, we could quote Job, right? But is that how we really feel? Lord, you give and you take away. Blessed be your name. I mean, can we pray that? That's the prayer of faith. That's the prayer of faith. Whatever happens here, God, I trust you. And listen, if you don't, and whatever you're facing, tell him. Tell, tell a brother or sister in Christ that you trust. Tell a good friend in Christ, look, I'm, I'm, I'm doubting right now. I'm doubting God. I'm doubting His faithfulness. I'm doubting His goodness. I'm struggling here. Can you pray for me? Can you help me? And then when you start praying, God, assure this beloved brother or sister that their sins are forgiven. That whether they live or whether they die, they are with you. That you will keep your promise to them. And then begin praying. I'm not saying you have to pray a certain order. I'm saying just get those things settled in your mind and then begin to pray. And then we can honestly say, Thy will be done. Right? Jesus included that. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's actually our prayer that the Lord would have us pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That's important. Right? And we, and, well, that's another time. But the things we experience in this world, no matter how awful they are, they are even the death or the suffering of a dearly loved one, they cannot be allowed to make you doubt the promise. That don't let them do that. That's why James connects all this at the end to wandering from the truth, doesn't he? It's not a new topic. That type of language, wandering from the truth, is usually used in the New Testament for apostasy, for denying the faith. That's where James knows what not getting your prayers answered in the affirmative feels like and does to the heart of a believer. 
He's saying don't commit apostasy. Don't deny the faith. In other words, God is with you. Don't do that. Don't walk away. Don't question his character. Don't doubt him. Because where do we bring the wandering brother or sister? What are we trying to bring them back to? The promise, to the gospel, to where our salvation and forgiveness are found. We wander because we sin. And we sin because we wander. But remember verse 15. Verse 15. Your sins are forgiven. You remember that. So James spent five chapters exhorting, admonishing, admonishing and instructing the church because they indeed belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it all closes with this plea here from their pastor to remain praying people. Because prayer draws you closer to Him. Not because you're going to get everything you ask for. Which means God knows which one of those two things is better. He reminds them of the best gift the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning has given to them. Forgiveness. That's where your hope is as a Christian. That's what we're counting on. Salvation through Jesus Christ. Because He is so gracious and so merciful and so sufficient, James says, and pray. Pray. Get to know Him. Forget this. Give me everything I want. Even when they're good things. Just, that's not going to sustain you. Commune with Him. Don't rely on yourself, especially in suffering. Don't use yourself and your feelings as the gauge for whether or not God accepts you or loves you or cares for you. Are you suffering tonight? Pray because He loves you. Are you joyful tonight? Sing because He loves you. Are you sick tonight? Are you dying? Know that God has given you shepherds to lean on in that hour who are to speak to you the Word of God and the promise of God and speak it over you if that's all that can be done at that point. The reality of this world for the believer is simply this. One way or another, God is going to raise you up. So if He doesn't heal you, He's still going to heal you. And end all of your suffering. Therefore, pray for yourself. And pray for one another because we are called to persevere with one another in prayer, singing praise, confessing our sins to one another, forgiving one another, and restoring the one who strays that we might obtain everlasting life with Christ on that final day.